The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. If you've got your copies of God's Word, turn with me to Acts 1. We need to get right to this. It's a distillation of passages of Scripture designed to add another um, piece of information from the Word of God concerning the matters of eternity in the series, If I Should Die Before I Awake. We ended up, as I said this morning, we've ended up at a place where the perfected body and soul are joined together in the new heavens and the new earth. And those who are uh, those who are raised under judgment, then the soul and the body are subjected to the judgment of Gehenna or the lake of fire. This is post judgment seat, which is post second coming of Christ. And um, I believe that this is crucial for many reasons, by the way. I think one of the things that allows people in this present uh, effort of a, uh, as one um, cultural elite has said, we're going to have a big cultural reset. I think much of it is rooted in the fact that the church has lost its eschatological, that is the doctrine of last things, its eschatological focus. What do I mean by that? Jesus tells us very clearly that while we have the triumphant progressive movement of the kingdom of God throughout the world and saving sinners, and wherever this movement goes, there will be the evidences of blessing, he also tells us clearly there is no utopia. That does not mean we embrace a, that we embrace a dystopia. It does not mean that we are not concerned about matters of uh, public policies and matters of justice. But it does tell us that we are those who understand that the heart of the problem is the problem with the heart. And when men and women get saved, even saved men and women have an old man within them. Therefore, there will be no perfect Christians and no perfected utopia on this side of eternity. I have heard many times people say this. Well, he's so heavenly minded, he's of no earthly good. I would like to suggest to you that while I understand the sentiment that people get so fascinated with going to the new heavens and the new earth that they think they honor Christ by passivity, are um, are just uh, playing the ostrich. I understand, but I don't really see that too very often in the lives of people. I actually think it's the opposite. For you to do the earthly good of extending the kingdom of God through the gospel of God, I believe you have to set your hope on the world to come. Behold, he comes. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. 
We are fully aware, as much as we hate poverty, the poor will be with us. As much as we hate partiality, men are going to engage in such acts of partiality uh, because of their sinful hearts. Do we address those sins? Yes. Do we call to repentance? Yes. Do we equip God's people to live differently? Yes. But we are living in a sin-cursed world, and therefore the utopia that beats within our heart, we know things aren't right, but the one who will make it right is Jesus. And he... From his victory of the cross and his ascension is coming again. And then he will make all things new. The new heavens and the new earth. Well, when is he coming? How is he coming? For many in the branches of the evangelical church, how many times is he going to come again? There's one whole system of theology that says he's coming two more times. He'll come and then he'll set up a kingdom and there'll be a rebellion after a thousand years and then he'll come again. There are those who say, no, he's coming actually two and a half times. He'll come seven years before that time and then he, but he doesn't come all the way, he just comes part of the way and he doesn't bring everything to a conclusion. He just takes his church out and raptures them out and then there's going to be a tribulation for seven years and then he'll come again and then after a thousand years he'll come back again in that rebellion. So there's two and a half second comings. Well, let me just go ahead and give myself away uh, before I even get to the sermon, which I probably have already done. I actually believe there's just one. Uh, he is coming again, and when he comes, that's it. And then, uh, and then the judgment, and then the new heavens, and the new earth, and the glories of it. Now, that brings up questions. Well, Harry, what about the millennium? I'm glad you asked. So I'm going to do a sermon on the millennium in this series. And, Harry, what about uh, the, the, the increasing tribulation at the end of time? And in my study this week, I came to admit my series is getting longer and longer. I came to another uh, conviction, given what is happening in the world today and given some questions that our young people were asking me. I believe that it would really be important for me to deal with the text in Revelation of the two beasts and the loosening of Satan at the end. And so I'm going to do that, even though I've done a series on Revelation. So, um, along with a sermon on the judgment seat itself. So, uh, that's what is before us. Um, So, what would I like to do tonight? I'm going to read some text and I'm going to do some uh, expositional statements from each of these texts that relate to the second coming. This is not exhaustive. I will refer to other texts that I won't have the time to read tonight, but I want to read a number of them for you, and each one of them is going to help us build some statements. So the answer to when and how I'll give you at the end after we've got the distillation from our exposition of these various texts. So the first one I'd ask you to go to with me is Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Here we get at the victorious ascension of Jesus after his 40 days past the resurrection. He takes the disciples out to the Mount of Olives. And as he uh, as he brought them out, 
um, he told them that he was going to ascend and that they were to wait for power from on high. And then when they received that power, the Pentecostal declaration of the new covenant and the outpouring of the spirit of God in the new covenant temple, which is his church and the individual believer. Then he then he says, uh, you may go and fulfill the great commission. Now, if you would, look at what he says in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him. So here we have the church meeting. Here the church is meeting, the disciples and those few that are gathered around them. So when they had come together, that's the language for church. They have sunagoge, they have gathered together, they have ecclesia, they have been called out and come together. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud, which I think is a reference to the Shekinah glory of God. The Shekinah glory of God, the cloud, took him up out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? In other words, why do you keep standing here looking into heaven? He's ascended. You're supposed to go back to Jerusalem and go to prayer for the visitation of the Holy Spirit that will send you out with power to be witnesses for Christ. And the fulfillment of the Great Commission. But they also say this. Why do you stay? Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, this Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. I don't believe it's any accident that Jesus is ascending from the Mount of Olives, not only in the fulfillment of Scripture concerning his victorious ascension, but also that when the angels then say, as you saw him lifted up in glory, he will come again in glory. As you see him lifted up in the angelic presence, he will come again with the angels. In other words, what you're seeing in the ascension will be repeated in a retrograde that is a return of Christ back here to be with us in Zechariah chapter 14. I won't turn there. You can. Zechariah chapter 14 says that will be at the Mount of Olives, that he will take his stand in the last day at the Mount of Olives. So here is this glorious statement about Christ's bodily ascension, bodily return, angelic presence, angelic presence in his return, that from the Mount of Olives back to the Mount of Olives. In between, we are empowered to do a mission until he returns. Let's go to another text of Scripture, familiar one for you. I want you to go with me to Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians. Well, I'll tell you what, if you don't mind, I'm going to reverse this. Go to First Thessalonians, something we've read um, a number of times, but I want to go back over it just to enumerate a couple of things. And verse 13, but we do not, chapter, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 
We do not want you to be ignorant, agnostos, uninformed brothers, about those who are asleep, that is, those who have died, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. In other words, those saints whose bodies are in the grave, but the spirits have gone into the perfections of the comforting presence of the Lord in, uh, in the intermediate state. When Jesus comes back, they're coming back with him. He brings them with him. He'll not only be accompanied by angels, but he'll be accompanied by those who have already gone to be with him. And they will meet their resurrected bodies to have a perfected body and soul for a new heavens and a new earth. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that those who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Here we find out about his coming. Just as Acts said he is coming back, he who ascended will now descend. When he himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together. Here's the church, the coming together ones. Here is the church universal in its purity, not the church militant with its imperfections, but the church universal in its purity. We will be caught up together with them in the clouds that is in the glory of the Lord to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So again, we have affirmed the personal return, the bodily return. We now have the glory and majesty of it. The voice of the archangel, the sound of the trumpet. That's a regal. That's a, the trumpet was a regal instrument announcing the coming and the presence of a king. And when the king comes, all rise. And so we will be raised up to be with him and deposited as the church of Jesus Christ, the now the established kingdom of God into the new heavens and into the new earth. Take your Bibles and go with me to Second Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, chapter two. The people in Thessalonia seem to need some regular instruction concerning the second coming. And uh, he lays out a passage that you and I will look at next week in Second Thessalonians 1, verses 5 through 12, the judgment seat. What I want you to look at is what has to happen before the judgment seat, and that's the second coming of Christ. And before the second coming of Christ... Paul says something else has to happen. Look at chapter 2 and verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to come from, from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. For the de- that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. In other words, there's going to be this significant rebellion at the end. And in concert with that is the man of lawlessness, also called the Antichrist, of which there has been many. But the text seems to indicate while John will tell us there have been many Antichrists, 
that here Paul indicates that there is a singular uh, captivating declaration of being against Christ in terms of the false prophet that will rise up against the Savior. He will be revealed. He's the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Now, I believe that that particular prophetic word has had um, what happens many times in scriptures, immediate fulfillments and then ultimate fulfillments and Christological fulfillments. In other words, the, the prophecy unfolds with greater and greater fulfillment. You can see this in, in, with Antiochus Epiphanes in the second century B.C. You can also posit the idea at 70 A.D. when the Romans trampled the courts of the temple of God and declared and brought their objects of worship into that place. But as much as I've tried to just embrace that as the fulfillment of it, I don't think that works in the context. This seems to indicate that the beast of the sea and the beast of the land will be led into this final rebellion in the time of the loosening of Satan when he who restrains is taken out of the way and there is this movement of the Antichrist. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things and you know what is restraining him now? I think that refers to the Holy Spirit's work and the work of God's grace in and through his church. That, and so what is, re, um, is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. We already have Antichrist. And we already have these rebellions and we already have the beast of the land and the beast of the sea, the beast of the seal, tyrannic sea, the tyrannical government and the beast of the land, the apostate church. But then in that day and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. And that's why I ultimately believe this is at the second coming because of that particular phrase. That he will do at the appearance of his coming, the epiphanos, the outshining of the appearance of Christ. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Folks, if there's any verse in your Bible for you to underline today, it would, might, that would be one of them anyway. How will Satan deceive the nominal church? He will come through the Antichrist and the false prophet. He shall come with false signs, wonders and miracles done with power. That's why I know I sound like a broken record, but that's why I keep hammering it home. Your Christian life is built on sound doctrine, through sound preaching, and sound study of the Word of God, not on experience. Because if you want to build your life on experience, you just created a highway to your heart for Satan. He can give all kinds of experiences. He can do signs, wonders, and miracles 
that are done with power beyond our explanation. If you don't believe it, go see what the magicians did for Pharaoh. It wasn't sleight of hand. So what you and I want to do is we do not want to go searching for the next miracle, the next sign. That's what an evil and adulterous generation does. What we are looking for is to fix our eyes on Jesus. What saves God's people in the day of the Antichrist? They love the truth. And his word is truth. The truth gives them the armor of Christ. The truth gives them the weapons of the spirit for Christ. They love the truth so as to be saved. What will happen to the nominal church? I think you're seeing it right now in the sifting and shifting that's going on. They don't know the truth, so they become the prey for the predatorial work of Satan through professing evangelical The professing, I said professing and nominal evangelical church. Well, anyway, so that's what he says will happen. And then he ends this way. And why does this happen? Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion. In other words, it's just like in the days of uh, with Pharaoh, God hardens the heart. You know, you got a brick that's you got a brick and you got water and you got mud. What does the sun do with that? Uh, the sun hardens it. And what God is doing is he will affirm that process of the hardening effect of their sin and rebellion against God in following the Antichrist, the false prophet. And what does he now say? They'll have a strong delusion that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This is why we keep giving a call to the Christian life in the pursuit of holiness. Pursue holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. It's not your pursuit of holiness that saves you. It's your pursuit of holiness that, number one, evidences your salvation, works out your salvation, number two, And number three, encourages other believers to stay the course. And so that is what he tells us about this Antichrist and his work. Now, would you go with me to 1 Corinthians? I'm sorry, would you go with me uh, to to 2 Peter chapter 3, a text I've already looked at for other reasons, but I'm going to ask you to go to it once again with me. 2 Peter chapter 3. I'd like for you to slip down to verse 8. Second Peter chapter three and verse eight. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, underline that, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. So why does he say that? Well, he says that because of the accusations that Jesus promised to come again, but he hasn't come. I guess he's going to be late. I guess he probably dropped it out of his calendar book. Uh, maybe it just didn't make it uh, when he uh, put the appointment. Uh, something's happened. No, he says, that's not what's happened. In fact, let's back up to verse 1. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. 
In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing that, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Well, they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are being stored up. Now, this time, not a judgment by water, but a judgment by fire being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. So there's a day of judgment coming, and that will include the judgment upon the earth and this conflagration of the heavens and the earth, and then rolling out a new heavens and a new earth. So that happens when Jesus comes again. But he hasn't come. Has he forgotten? Is he late? Do not let this one fact, beloved, escape your notice that the Lord, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. That's not a formula. That's telling you God is not put in the box of time. God made time. God made matter. God made space. God is infinite, eternal and patient. God is not governed by what he made. Therefore, when God acts, one day is as a thousand years. He's not measured. He is eternal. And so and so he says to them, uh, he says to us, the Lord is not slow to fulfill it. He's not late to fulfill his promise of coming as some counselorness, but is patient. Why hasn't he come? It's the patience of God toward who? You, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come and reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will, Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away. And, and with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be now in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. You can underline that one as well. Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So you've got the new heavens and the new earth at the judgment and at the ju- and the judgment happens when Jesus comes. But Jesus hasn't come. Is he late? Has he forgotten? What is the problem? Why hasn't he come? He says, well, first of all, Jesus isn't uh, the, the God of glory is not controlled by time. Secondly, he controls time. Thirdly, his his um, not coming yet is not him being late, but is the evidence of his of his patient toward. Look at the text, please. Toward you. Verse nine. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any of who you should perish. Who are the you? Go back to verse eight. The beloved. Go back to verse one. The beloved who, by the way, have received now a second letter. 
So let's go see about the first letter. Go over to first Peter chapter one. First Peter chapter one, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles. So who are the beloved? The elect of God. So why has Jesus not returned yet? Well, Peter says, let me give you a salient reason. When Jesus came, he came to save his people from their sins. When Jesus rose and ascended into heaven, the declaration was made. Father, I lose not one. And the Jesus who finished the work of redemption to save any and all of his people from every tribe and nation, and not one will be lost, has ascended into heaven and sent his spirit. The one who has finished the work of redemption is now finishing his work in the gathering and perfecting of the redeemed. And it's not till that is over that he comes. He won't come until all of his beloved have been brought to faith and repentance. So how do you hasten the coming of the Lord? Evangelize. Somewhere out there, someday, that last one's going to be led to Jesus. And then the trumpet. And then the coming of Christ. So here is the second coming of Christ awaits not only an antichrist, but it awaits the gathering of all the elect of God from all of the nations uh, of the work of the gospel. Now, one final text. Would you go with me to Matthew 24? Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. There are six sermons of Jesus. I call it, uh, I kind of divide three major, three minor. Five of the six discourses of Jesus are found in the Gospel of Matthew. I don't think it's any accident that Matthew, who is speaking to a Jewish population, gives the five sermons of Jesus, uh, the one greater than Moses, who gave us the five books as the opening author of Scripture. And this is one of those discourses. This is the second longest discourse. This is called uh, the, uh, the Olivet Discourse. Let me show you how it opens up in chapter 24 and verse 1. Jesus left the temple. So there at the temple, the Aaron, the, the temple mount, and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. This is the Zerubbabel temple that has been refurbished into what many call the eighth wonder of the world by Herod. It was done beginning before the birth of Jesus and finished sometime during the life of Jesus. It was absolutely extraordinary, exquisite, magnificent, 150-foot doors. It was amazing, the glory and the majesty of this. The, um, the gate that led into the very temple proper was lined with gold. And when the, eastern, when the rising of the sun hit it, it was utterly blinding to anyone that looked at it in its reflections. And so it's obvious that this became something of hopefully sanctified pride for his disciples. They showed him the buildings of the temple. They were obviously boasting on it. And Jesus answered them, you see all these? You see all these, do you not? Amen. I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. One of the most amazing moments of my life, 
I have now taken 15 trips. Hopefully we'll have another one. We can't do it this year because Israel won't let us. But it's called Learning the Bible in the Land of the Bible. And I take you to the pinnacle of the temple and show you stones that are tons in weight that were cast down so that there was not one stone upon the other. And you see right in your eyes the fulfillment of Scripture in 70 A.D. in the destruction of Jerusalem, which is what Jesus is prophesying here. And as he makes this prophetic word, it sounds like they just kind of shut down as they begin to think through this. And after some time, they leave the Temple Mount. They go across the Kidron Brook and they arrive at the Mount of Olives. And when they get there, Jesus takes the position of a teacher. Jesus sat down on the Mount of Olives. And the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. Now, here's what you've got to do to handle everything that comes in chapter 24 and 25. You've got to understand that Jesus' discourse is answering not the question, when are you coming again, but actually answering three questions. When he tells them of this, I mean, folks, you've got to see these stones, the, the Solomonic stones and then the Herodian stones, gigantic Tons and tons of weight. So when he tells them this is going to be torn down, not one stone upon another, their only thought is you must be talking about the end of the age and what you have been telling us that you are coming again. And while they didn't understand all of that, he didn't understand his resurrection yet. They had heard it. And so they then associate this, this that he is describing with the cataclysmic end of the age. So they ask him three questions. One, when will these things be, the destruction of the temple and the tearing down of these stones? Number two, when is, when is, um, and when will these things be, and what will be, note the definite article, what will be the sign of your coming? And, secondly, the sign of the end of the age. So Jesus begins to answer. And he answers those three questions. The first thing, the first one of the three he takes up is the end of the age. And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of war. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. This isn't that those aren't the signs of us. Every time I, I mean, we get all of these events and then a book comes out. This means Jesus is coming again. And I get the you know, people send me the books and everything. Folks, that's business as usual. This is a sinful world. We have catastrophic events. We have wars. We have rumors of wars. That's that that has been with us ever since the fall. And uh, and now he's going to set it in context for you. See, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. There be false Christ and and will lead many astray. 
And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but. These are but signs. These are not, I mean, these are, these are birth pains. These are not the signs. All these are but the beginning of the birth pain. They're not even the final birth pains. These are birth pains. This is the creation and humanity groaning to be delivered. That's just, this is the groaning that's going on. And you see it with catastrophic events, political events. You see it with military events. You see all of this that is happening. That's not the end. That's business as usual in a fallen world. That's what it is. But it is telling you. The world is groaning to be delivered. Birth pains. Keep the metaphor. What happens with birth pains? They become sharper, more intense, more regular, and more, um, and more rapid. And so you can expect them to intensify, but this is the beginning of anticipating the end, not the sign of the end. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation. My people are going, don't, don't listen to anybody that tells you you're going to escape the tribulations of this world. My people, will be, they will deliver you up to tribulation. They'll put you to death. You'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will, it will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. That is, those who persevere. They're not perfect, but they persevere is the evidence of salvation. And this gospel, can you recycle to this morning? This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Because the elect can't all be saved until the gospel goes because faith comes from hearing the word. The sign is not the brokenness of a sin-cursed world. The sign is the gospel through his people going to all the world and all the nations. Then the end will come. Well, what about those temple buildings? Pick up the next verse. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, that is the desecration of the temple, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the woman who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter on a Sabbath, for since there will, for, for then there will be a great tribulation that is in this, there's going to be a very intense tribulation that's accompanying this destruction of the temple. Such has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And that is the intensification of this. Folks, you got to read some of the extra biblical historians to see the anger that the Roman soldiers evoked. Now, you've got to have a lot of anger to tear down eight ton stones. 
And they came with a vengeance over the four-year siege that had taken place. Cannibalism had taken place in the siege. All kinds of just horrific acts had been inflicted during 60 to, from 66 to 70 A.D. Then he says, pray that your flight may not be in the winter on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. In other words, God's got a time limit on it. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. There's that there is that Thessalonian warning again. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner room, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. It will be not only like a thief, it will be sudden as well as glorious is what we have learned to this point. So that's what's going to happen. Now, I think I don't have time to go into this. I think this is looking at being fulfilled at 66 to 70 A.D., which is when the temple was destroyed. And so he's answered the first of their three questions. When will these things be? But there is the anticipation of that at the end of time when Satan is loosed in the work of the Antichrist, which we will take up at a later date. But here he has answered two questions. When's the end of the age? When the gospel. Not the birth pains. The birth pains are just telling you the end's coming and everything's groaning to be delivered. They'll intensify and they will become more rapid and they will become um, sharp. But then the, the sign that you're looking for is the gospel preached to all the nations. Then comes the end of the age. When will the temple be torn, uh, torn down? He just told them this temple is going to be torn down when uh, this great tribulation that is going to be inflicted upon God's old covenant people from 66 to 70 A.D. that will include a replication of the desolation of Daniel and that is the profaning of the temple itself. Then he says this in verse 29. Let's go to the third question. The second coming of Christ. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, it's because of that verse that I believe what happens in 66 to 70 A.D. will have a replication right before the second coming of Christ that will be accompanied by this, these signs. That, these are quotes from the Old Testament, by the way, of what will happen in those days. And there will be this darkness, uh, and, the, and the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Now, many believe that this is looking at the spiritual warfare. The stars would represent the pastors uh, that are in the hands of the Lord, even as they are in the book of Revelation. And the, and the sun and the moon is the work of the Spirit of God and the Word of God to give the light of the gospel. And then some believe that this is, of course, a geographical, a, a, um, a climatic uh, dynamic that will be seen. But here's what he then says. What about the sign of his coming? Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. The sign is Christ. He will appear. 
And so Christ will be seen when he comes and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. I don't think that's a mourning of remorse. I think that's a remorning of uh, a remorning of uh, of rebellion. And they will see, <coughs> they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. There's the trumpet again. Then will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. You see, all the elect have been saved now. And then Jesus appears, the trumpet, the voice, the gathering of his people from all of the nations to himself. And uh, as he comes in the clouds with power and great glory, the sign is himself appearing. And he says this, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as the branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, I think there he is referring back. And that's one of the things that you have to do when you work through this. Which one of these questions? is he dealing with the presence of the generation deals with the initial question when will these things take place the destruction of the temple that will take place before the generation in front of him perishes and is set aside now people try to make generations say about third about three or four different things i think it just means what it means that generation and what it's referring to is it's that generation now you're in the mid-30s and so by the time you get to 66 to 70 A.D., that generation that's in front of him will still be living. And when these things take place in the destruction of the temple that sets the clock ticking toward the gathering of the elect and then the coming of Christ and the gospel going to all the nations. And then um, God's word will not pass away. All that he has promised will be fulfilled. Now, what about the day or the hour? I hope you didn't come tonight looking for that. Here's what he says. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son. He's speaking of his humanity there. But the father only for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the son of man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So what happened to the unbeliever? They got swept away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Just like it was in the days of Noah, so it will be when Jesus comes. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, swept away. To what? Judgment. The other will be Left, just as Noah and his family secured in the ark. They will be left secured in Christ. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, swept away, judgment. One left. Therefore, stay awake. You do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would not. He would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. 
Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not know. Well, I'm out of time. In fact, I'm five minutes over. And um, so I can't do any more of this uh, with you the rest of that chapter. But I'll just try to sum it up for you from the text. But from the, what I just read, uh, how many times have I been given the book, uh, You Don't Want to Be Left Behind? Oh, yes, I do. I don't want to be taken away. In the context, in the days of Noah, who got taken away? The unbeliever to judgment. I want to be left secure in the redeeming work of Christ, the ark of my salvation. That's where I want to be. That's what the text says. The text tells us those who are taken away are taken away in judgment. This is not a secret second coming to get believers out. This is the second coming and unbelievers will be swept away to judgment as it takes them unaware and unprepared. Believers who are looking at the signs of the who are looking at the times are ready and ready to serve. They're like the fig tree that knows the season and they are ready to serve him. They are not going to be overtaken. But they will be ready. So let me give you these statements. And then, uh, Benny, I'll ask for you to come up after our closing prayer. Christ will return in his glorified body at the Mount of Olives after the Antichrist is revealed. And the gospel is preached to all the nations. And all of the elect have been brought to Christ as Lord and Savior. Furthermore, that coming will be sudden Glorious and visible. What will you be doing? Here's what all of these verses keep telling you. You will be found not perfect, but ready. Faithful. Waiting for his coming. Not in passivity, but in biblically informed activity. Waiting for and looking for the blessed hope of Christ. That's what you will be doing. You won't be trying to find the date or the hour. You will be focused upon Christ and ready, who will come when the Antichrist has been revealed, when the elect have been gathered through the gospel to all the nations, and when he comes, every no secret. Every eye shall see him. And they'll hear that trumpet. And they will, they, will, uh, they will hear that trumpet and the command of the archangel. And all of the people will be gathered together. Now we've got church. Perfect for the new heavens and the new earth. Father, thank you for the moments we could be together. Would you receive our thanks for the privilege to go through your word? And would you take these um, basic biblical truths and seal them into the hearts and lives of your people? And we'll give you the praise and the glory, even as we close this prayer with the prayer of, the, of John. He is coming quickly. Behold, Lord, come quickly. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reader. 
Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.